Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Julia Craighill to the show. Julia Craighill provides sustainability, strategy development, and execution plans that enable clients to improve financial and environmental performance. She is a driven, award-winning sustainability expert committed to helping organizations build value through green strategies. With more than three decades of experience in architecture, construction, and sustainability, she provides pragmatic guidance to building owners, managers, and occupiers for their workplace and building operations. A frequent speaker and author on issues of sustainability and resiliency, Julia is known for her ability to inspire organizations to make the leap from good intentions to long-term profitable performance. Julia, how are you doing today? I'm terrific, Raj. How are you? Julia, all things considered, I'm doing well. You know, we're recording here. It's um, April 6th, 2020, and we are in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. Nothing is going, you know, the way things are supposed to, but I think we're all just trying to handle it the best we can. And what about on your side? Well, yes, exactly. I I tell friends that I pitch back and forth from desperation to a sort of calm resolve. Uh, So catch me at any moment and I'm at either end or in between. It is, and the past couple of days have been absolutely gorgeous here in Washington, D.C. So I'm trying to have that buoy my spirits. Well, what kind of day did I catch you on? Buoyed spirit day or somewhere in between? Buoyed spirit. Yes. And I'm getting to talk to you. So it's a twofer. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. So, Julia, i like to open the show by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? So, uh, I actually have two things, if you'll indulge me. Um, Try to make them short. One is that I have a three-legged dog, which I guess isn't all that unique, but in my neighborhood... It, it has made me a minor celebrity, and this was not by uh, intent. Um, she was adopted from Thailand. She was a street dog that was hit by a car, and the small rescue had to um, amputate her leg. And um, she's just intrepid. Um, nothing slows her down. Um, and uh, a lot of people know her. Her name is Lucy. They don't really know me. I, I'm, I'm merely her owner. And uh, I actually had one person stop me and say these words, um, your dog is my hero. So I have a dog who is hero. And I guess the other, pardon me, yeah. That's amazing. So first of all, I didn't know that um, they import dogs from Thailand. So that's a whole different story, I guess. And you said she was hit by a car, correct? Yeah. What kind of dog is she? Good question. Uh, no idea though. I think she has a fair amount of Basenji in her. So we have two dogs and one of them is named Lucy. It's a popular name. It's the name they gave her at the rescue and how I came to adopt her is a long story. We don't need to go into it, but since she had that name, I just, uh, just kept it. I think it's a pretty popular name. Well, there you go. And what's the second interesting thing? So the second 
interesting thing is that I actually wanted to be a ballet dancer early in life, and I went to a professional ballet high school, the Academy of the Washington Ballet here in uh, Washington, D.C., Um, I then went on to major in ballet in college, and it was there uh, at the University of Utah, which had a still does have a terrific program. But I looked around and I thought, wow, the the world is so much bigger. I think I I want to get out and and uh, do that. And so, somewhat incongruously, I chose to become an architect, just sort of out of thin air. And it took me really over a decade to to sort of realize that uh, where that juncture was between ballet and architecture. And um, I like to say that I used to enjoy moving through space. And then I decided to create space that one can move through. Well, that's beautiful. And I feel like Both of those are creative endeavors. And staying on ballet for a moment, I heard this morning or this weekend that one of the uh, one of a way to perhaps get through this time right now is to incorporate movement, specifically dance into your life, because apparently this is what they say, that you can't be sad and dance at the same time. So I don't know how true that is, but maybe you can perhaps share some light on that. (laughs) That's that's great. You know, I think that really is true. And when I think back to my dancing career, I have not done a lot of dancing uh, as of late. I've really settled down more into kind of yoga and basic fitness. But one of my classmates uh, who went on to have a professional career now teaches and she's got some uh, the school is putting virtual classes up. So I've promised her I'm going to take one of her classes. Um, and fortunately, no one will have to see me do that. Well, I hope we all take the opportunity to incorporate some movement into our lives. I agree. So, Julia, switching gears a little bit, can you share a little bit about your current endeavor? Sure, sure. I um, provide sustainability strategy development and execution plans that enable clients of all sorts to improve their financial and uh, environmental performance. Um, Though I have a three-decade career in architecture, then construction and sustainability that really focus more on new construction, I've pivoted to uh, existing buildings and workplaces as a place to focus my energies. Um, So I really focus on those things that a company does in their everyday business activities. A couple of questions. You know, you've been in this three decades now, you mentioned architecture and then construction, sustainability. How have you seen, how have you seen things change in the three decades regarding sustainability specifically? Mm, That's a great question. Um, I I actually, when I started my construction career in 1994, um, obviously sustainability was not, it certainly wasn't on my radar, but early on, I was given the chance to build, be the project manager for a very green building. Um, it was the same team that had advised um 
the uh, Chesapeake Bay Foundation's original building, which was a lead pilot, um, and it earned platinum. So they were a great team, and they were helping advise on this project for um, a small admissions cottage at Bryn Mawr School. And the architects had gotten to know me on previous projects and being an architect who understood design intent and where they were coming from. um, When the client said, you know, I know you're already through design development and you've got this design, but we'd like to switch it entirely and make it be super green, which changed the entire building orientation type foundation structure, everything. They said, well, And of course, the deadline didn't move. Um, That architecture firm said, okay, we'll do this, but we're not going to be able to complete the construction documents. And there's only one project manager that we would like to manage that construction. And it was me because they knew that they could trust me to follow the design intent. So that was my introduction in 1998. Um, and, and And then things you know, went on as normal. And I just kept pondering my experience. I hadn't been part of the decision process I was implementing. And I kept thinking, well, how, how did they make all these decisions? And, and what does this really all mean? So fast forward to January, 2001, I I get this notice about this thing called LEED. It was actually handed to me from the director of construction, um, who I was generally the person that if they didn't understand something, it was like having Mikey try the life cereal. They were like, Julia, do you know anything about this? Well, I didn't. And uh, I almost sort of said, yeah, it doesn't seem like much. Um, except that the Washington Post architecture critic wrote an article on the Chesapeake Bay Foundation and how it was a pilot for this new LEED program. So I thought, okay, sounds legitimate. I went January 2001 to a rollout. They presented this thing and it was just eye-opening. It, it talked about how your site selection and stormwater were actually green building and all these other things that I had never thought of. And I thought to myself, wow, this is so terrific. It answers so many questions that I had. It sort of dodges a lot of the difficult issues that I couldn't imagine how you could figure it out. Too bad it will never go anywhere. And uh, fortunately, that's proved me wrong, and I'm I'm glad I was wrong because they said they wanted this to be uh, market driven, and to a great extent, it has been. Although regulatory and other incentives have also been driving it, but it's really uh, you know when I used to describe it to people, even green building, they thought I had two heads back in the early 2000s. And now, you know, it's really recognizable. So 1998, you talked about green and lead. You gave foundations as an example. What are a couple of things that you've seen change the most and specifically when it comes to buildings? Yeah. I mean, I think that energy to a great degree has been a driver, certainly was an early driver. So Um, ways that buildings can incorporate energy generation, solar panels um, being a 
a big part of that. Also, increasingly energy efficiency um, for when you design that building, for the systems within it and the envelope, but also for existing buildings. Um, that's really been one thing that I've seen historically. Now we're starting to really see green building and sustainability more, more holistically, more systemically. And so um, healthy buildings, which affect worker health and productivity um, and resilience, which are ways that that building can respond to um, disasters and hazards and, uh, you know, keep on ticking um, are, are coming now to the, to the forefront. You know, I love the idea of um, a healthy building and a building designed to promote worker or employee health. Do you have an example of something that could be put into a building to enhance employee health? Oh, there are so many. And of course, there is a certification for that called WELL. And and like sustainability, it, it has such a broad range of things that you can do. You can um, improve the water quality and water access that uh, employees or visitors have. Um, all the way to, you know, on the on a, on another part, you can bring in what is known as biophilia, which is sort of access to nature directly by views or by bringing plants in, as well as aspects of nature. And there's a lot of science behind that that uh, it promotes health and and therefore productivity. So going back to, you mentioned earlier in the interview regarding some of the advice you give your clients, what's some of the tactical advice you give them specifically around sustainability? Right. So what I do sort of where I practice is at the sort of high level strate- uh, st- strategy part. So I'm going to be advising them or helping them develop initiatives around energy and carbon, but also what any business can do is look at their purchasing and make that more sustainable. There's many dimensions to that, um, as well as water, as well as worker health, um, and, and just sort of other issues like that. That's really interesting. So you, sounds like you dig directly into the supply chain too, and perhaps in the vendors also? Absolutely. And there are many ways that you can analyze the products and services that you buy and those vendors. So you can look at the products themselves, such as recycled content and paper, um, but you can also look at the vendors and what sort of sustainability initiatives initiatives do they have to be more sustainable? And then are they purchasing sustainable items um, further, you know, looking deep into their supply chain, such as fair trade um, items? Very interesting. 
So, you know, you mentioned a three-decade career, and I'm going to say, doing my math, about 22 years in the sustainability lead area. The crux of our conversation is the why behind you, what you do. You know, what, what drove you, what kept you in this sustainability area? You know, you could have done many different things with your skill set. What, what continues to drive you in this particular sector? Yes, I, I think that I have, I have several whys, very, on a very particular to my business why, um, is that I, I pivoted from new construction to existing buildings very purposefully because it became clear to me that we can't build our way out of our current problems. Um, existing buildings have been neglected uh, for really the majority of the sort of sustainability effort. It's focused on new technologies and sort of sexy new building type things. And existing buildings are are less sexy. Let's just admit that. And but we we have many more buildings that exist right now than we will build. So we've got to stop ignoring that segment and um, look at, yes, renovating them, retrofitting them, but also where I am is really boots on the ground, looking at how they are operated and managed because there's a tremendous amount of improvement that we can make and even small improvement when multiplied many times is going to have um, quite an impact. So my why for pivoting my business is that. Um, on a deeper level, I have really, I was sort of thinking about this kind of two um, whys that uh, relate to one, my upbringing, and the other was during my construction period where I, I, had, I had quite an enlightening um, experience. So with my family, um, that also breaks into two. One is that um, my parents were really focused on nature. Um, they enjoyed it quite a lot. We spent our summers sitting in a cabin in a small farming community in Northwest Pennsylvania, where we would hike and I would ride horses with my mother. And my mother would talk about the experiences she had doing the same thing with her father um, and how he had such a reverence for nature and um for lack of a better word, the intelligence um, of the natural world. And it, that was influenced me quite a bit. And as I've reflected on that, I realized that what uh, my grandfather and then my mother was talking about has now been sort of codified as biomimicry, um, which is a theory brilliantly developed and espoused by Janine Benyus. Uh, are you familiar with it? I'm not, but I'm going to look her up because I've got an upcoming episode and I'm not going to give it away, but um, a young lady has created a new device using biomimicry to convert wind energy into power. Yeah, that's it. 
So that's exactly it, it. It is sort of the practice that learns and mimics from strategies found in nature, and there are quite a few. So that's going to be a great um, episode. Um, and and then back to my family. I think just uh, on both sides and for generations, uh, we were pretty much raised that we should be of service. So that um, that's really followed and informed my life. Um, and then on the construction side, the the incident that happened was I um, was project managing a nursing home, and it was on a uh, sloped wooded site. And uh, per the construction documents, we cleared much of that forest, leveled the ground, and then slopely, uh, steeply sloped it to a stormwater retention pond. Um, I was really quite proud of the work that my team had done. We had in sort of record time uh, done this earthwork. And uh, it was soon after that that my late husband came to visit the site. And he looked around and said, wow, there has got to be a better way. I mean, just cutting down all these uh, trees and um, the sort of desecration and at that moment, the words stung, but they've really stayed with me. Yes, we, uh, we do need a better way. And I want to be part of that change. I love that. I also, you know, I teased up from what you said earlier. I see an overlap between the idea of service and your experience in nature. And it makes for a very beautiful Venn diagram. And the the fact that you could find something, you know, from a vocation standpoint that fits directly in the middle of that, it must be it must be quite fulfilling to wake up to that every morning. It is great. It it really is. Yeah. I'm I'm very motivated and uh, you know, happy that I'm doing what I am doing. So staying along those lines, if you could share some words of advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? So I I think Again, I have two two thoughts on that. Um, one would be uh, to find a good mentor. I, I didn't have one early in my career, but when I made the transition into construction, which was quite the leap for a ballerina architect, um, pun not intended, but I guess it was there, um, mm-hmm. I did that because I was recruited by someone who became my mentor. And quite frankly, in the early 90s, a woman on the construction site managing things uh, was not not, uh, that common. So I never really would have survived without a mentor. Um, I I like to joke that they used to think I was the secretary until I told them to uh, tear the wall out. (laughs) Um, And so I was quite passive about it in my career. But last year, um, I was invited to be a panelist on our local USGBC chapters, Women in Green program. Um, This was sort of kicking off a year-long series of events. We have a terrific committee, and they've, they've really been wonderful. I've learned a lot. Um, afterwards, we were paired with a mentor, mentee, um, and a young woman 
we were sort of write in if we were interested, chose me very specifically because she, like me, studied ballet very intensely um, in high school and has since gone on is is starting a career in construction. So, you know, my takeaway from that was you really have to look for a mentor, not let it just sort of passively happen and um, cultivate that relationship because I think that really helped me and I, I hope to help others. So you said you had two pieces of advice. One was find a mentor. Okay. So that's my advice. You said wisdom. Yes, ma'am. Also. So on 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 wisdom, um, and I think I think this also goes to why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um I we have no planet B. Um and our focus on short-term gains that are detrimental to nature's resources and uh humanity's future um are really kind of myopic. Um, one is it doesn't enable us to see the potential benefits of, of doing sustainability that can be financial, um, as well as satisfying. Um, but the other part of this that, that I believe is that I I think people see themselves as the, the sort of, you know, apex species smarter than everyone else. Um, We sort of mentioned that in a way talking about biomimicry, which says really nature is a whole lot smarter than we are. And if you think about it, we're sort of toddlers on the timeline of this planet. Um, Nature has had a whole lot more time to work things out. And I don't think we are stewards of this planet, really, um, because nature will be here long after we are gone and have taken a couple or more species with us. So um, we're so dependent on it. And I think that's what we, we need to realize. So I think we're in the middle of a moment right now where we're realizing that perhaps we're not the apex. And to a certain extent, nature is much more powerful than we are. Especially with this virus going on. So, I really appreciate you sharing that. Julia, is there anything else that we haven't spoken about or explored that you'd like to mention before we go? No, I think we've had a wonderful conversation and I appreciate so much you having me on. Well, Julia, thank you so much. And I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Terrific. Thanks, Raj. Thank you for listening. And if you like what you heard, please give us a rating and review at Apple Podcast. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production. And if you want to show your support and help us grow, please share with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle.